Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here today. It is so good to have you. Um, I'm so pumped that we're starting a brand new series of messages that we're calling, I Want to Believe in God, But. And so for us, this series really is going to be a conversation around some of the most common barriers to belief in God in our culture. And I think that the more that we sort of develop and we watch our culture begin to develop, this is becoming an even more relevant conversation, especially when you consider some of the trends of our culture. Did you know that we live in a culture that seems to be increasingly more skeptical of the church and less convinced of the existence of God? In 1965, here's a few stats to help support that thought. In 1965, A poll done by a man named Lou Harris said that 97% of Americans believed in the existence of God. In 2007, a Pew Research study found that only 71% of Americans have absolute certainty about the existence of God, and in 2014, only 63% of Americans had the same conviction. And my guess is that over the last four years, from 2014 to 2018, the trends and the numbers have continued to probably spiral downward. And so the question that I have a lot of times, and perhaps you're asking the same question, is why do people no longer believe in God? And so there was a research uh, done by the Pew study uh, in 2018, and they listed the top four reasons why Americans no longer believe in God. And so number one was because they were disenchanted. That means that people had lost hope in their parents' idea of God. Number two, it said that they weren't interested. They didn't see God or the idea of God as a necessary component to their current lifestyle. Number three, it said that views had evolved. That meant that they had moved beyond belief in God, and they saw faith as sort of an archaic, old-school way of thinking. And for the vast majority of people, they found that people rejected belief in God because of a crisis of faith. That's where some people's picture of God was inconsistent with the reality that they lived. That some people's picture of God was inconsistent with the reality that they lived. Maybe there was a religious leader that they looked up to and then somewhere along the way they felt betrayed by that religious leader or maybe that person did something unethical and it triggered a crisis of faith. Maybe they had joined a church and they thought it was friendly but it turned out to be a rude group of hurtful, imperfect people that triggered a crisis of faith. And maybe in some people's lives, what we found is that you prayed for something that you desperately needed, that you believed that God wanted you to have, and it was not granted to you. And some of us sort of operate with the expectation that when we pray to God, he will hear us and he will answer our prayers. And so in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the distorted views that may create barriers for belief in our life. And so over the next four or five weeks, we're going to be talking about the invisible God syndrome, the fact that I want to believe in God, but I can't see him. I can't feel anything when it comes to God. I can't sense him in my life. How do I know that he's there? We're going to talk about the evil God perspective, where we want to believe, but have you seen all of the horrible things that are happening in our world? How could I possibly believe that there is a good God that exists in light of all the atrocities that I witness in my world? We're going to talk about the controlling God, where there are too many rules in faith. How can I believe in a God that doesn't want us to enjoy the freedom that is offered in this life? And today, we're going to talk about what we call on-demand 
God, the on-demand God. And so before we enter into this conversation, I want to ask a highly theological question to this group of people. And so feel free to raise your hand if this applies to you. But how many of you have registered on Prime? How many of you have a Prime account through Amazon? Okay, we've got a handful of people. Don't be shy. There's no judgment being cast. I, own, I have a Prime account. And if you're like me and you registered for this account when it first came out, you did so because of one of the services that they offered, and that was two-day free shipping, right? That is how they captured the hearts of the American people. They started offering expedited shipping for absolutely no additional cost. And I think what Amazon tapped into was this fundamental human desire called the gift of immediacy. It's like we get in our hands what we want when we want it. And so you could say that we live in a culture that is an on-demand culture. We have on-demand purchases. We have on-demand food with DoorDash. We have on-demand transportation with Uber. We have on-demand entertainment with Netflix. That's crazy, right? Like whenever we want to watch something, we can watch it. When I grew up, back in my day, when I was a child, you actually had to sit in front of a TV at a certain time to watch a show that you wanted to watch. And when I was growing up, at some point, we only had one TV in our house. And so that meant that we were like all watching the same thing at the same time in the same room. I mean, when's the last time you sat around a TV and you watched the same show? You have probably sat in the same bed with your spouse watching two different things on Netflix. Am I right? We live in such a different culture, but it is a picture of the on-demand culture that we live in, what we get, what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And I think that this in so many ways is wonderful, right? It is a picture of the technological advancement of our culture, but I think that on a number of levels, this influences the way that we relate with God because sometimes we view our relationship with God as this on-demand God. And a lot of times that's expressed in our prayers. God, will you get us into the school that we want to be in? Will you get us into the neighborhood that we want to be in? God, will you heal a friend from suffering? God, will you get me this job? Lord, I need more money. Will you help increase my income? And sometimes this is sort of the expectation that we have when we ask for something, God will give it to us immediately. But if you've been someone who has prayed throughout the course of your life, what you will learn is that is not typically the way that God operates in our relationships. Not typically. And sometimes this is our process for when we experience these things. If God doesn't do what I know he could have done when I asked him to do it, then this is how we process it. If God doesn't do what I know he could have done when I asked him to do it, then we may be assumed that he isn't powerful. Maybe he's not capable of intervening in our situation. Or maybe we assume that he isn't good. He doesn't care enough about our pain and our suffering and our desires to do anything about it. Or sometimes we come to the conclusion that if we pray and we have not heard from God in the time that we have designated, then God does not exist. He isn't there. But I think that there are some other conclusions that we could come to in light of this circumstance. 
I think there's a better way to process it, but it first has to be built on a more fundamental truth that we have to grasp if we want to see how God could work in a different way outside of our timeline. And this is the fundamental truth, that God does not exist to serve us, but we exist to serve him. God does not exist to serve us. Instead, we exist to serve him. And I think that for a lot of us, when we hear this statement, it is a paradigm shift for us. It was like when JFK said in his speech, ask not what your country can do for you. Instead, ask what you can do for your country. This was a paradigm shift. And the shift, what it does is it is taking us out of the center of the relationship and realizing that my life was not intended for me, but instead my life was really about him. It is a paradigm shift. In 1473, a man was born in Poland, a man who was responsible for one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the Renaissance era. His name was Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus. And what he discovered, he formulated a model of the universe that placed the sun in the center of the solar system rather than the earth. And it was called the heliocentric universe model. And his discovery, what it did is that it required people to reorient their perspective about life. They had to come to the very difficult conclusion that they were not the center of the universe. And sometimes this is what has to happen, this sort of paradigm shift happens in our relationship with God because sometimes we assume the same thing. We want God to be ready to do what we want, when we want, and in our minds, if you've grown up in this culture, you may think, if Amazon can do it in two days, why cannot, why God can't do it in two days? But the problem with this is this is sort of a distortion of the way that we relate with God. It's a fundamental distortion of the way that God interacts with humanity, and the problem and the danger is that when we misalign our relationship with God, it's going to create these un- realistic expectations and when we have unmet expectations in our relationship the most important relationship that we have oftentimes this is what leads to a crisis of faith oftentimes when we think that god will answer our every beck and call this will create a crisis of faith faith in that moment when he does not and so to, this morning i want to share with you a few a few thoughts a few truths that i think will help to build a healthier thriving, more exhaustive relationship with God than an on-demand God could provide. So number one, the truth that we embrace is that God is for us. God is always for us. And this is a truth, and this is really what I think it means when we talk about God's love. We have to understand that we have a God that will never stop loving us, that his love for us is more deep and more pure, and more genuine, and more aware than any other type of love than we have ever experienced on this earth. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you far more than you love yourself. I love the way Paul describes the process, or gives a description of God's love. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, he says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. Now, some of you are thinking, I've never completely experienced some of those attributes, but I wonder if it makes more sense if we read it this way. 
Can anything separate us from God? Even if, it, even if we're going through a season where we have someone close to us that's suffering, does that mean that God is not for us? If you are filled with anxiety about your life, does it mean that God is not for you? If you have lost your job recently, or if your marriage is in shambles, or if your relationships are broken, or if your children are making harmful decisions in their life, does that mean that God is no longer for you? This is what Paul says. He says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God or from God's love. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there may be some of you today that are here in this room that are walking through a frustrating season of life, a difficult season of life, a season of life where you just cannot understand why things are happening the way that they are. And what Paul is saying is that difficulties in your life are not a sign that God does not love you. When your prayers go unanswered is not a sign that you have fallen out of favor with God. I love this statement. God does not prove his love for us when he does what we ask. He proved his love for us when he died on the cross. God does not prove his love for us when he does what we ask. He proved his love for us when he died on the cross. That is the nature of God's relationship with us. It is not dependent on every ask that we make of him and whether or not we see that ask come to fruition in the way that we hoped it would. But he has already established the groundwork of his love for us when he made a sacrifice for our lives on his own behalf. Number two, God can see what we cannot. Sometimes people ask, why does God allow for certain things to happen in our world? Maybe you've seen a great person who was taken in the prime of their life. Maybe you've witnessed some of the terrorist attacks that have happened globally in our world. Maybe you've seen some of the natural disasters that have killed thousands of people. Or maybe you know someone who's suffering every day in their life. And we ask the question, what good could possibly come out of these circumstances? And I realize that the best way to answer these questions or to respond to those situations is not to try to reason with people who are asking those questions, but to be absolutely honest about those moments and to say, I don't know. Because me, like you, have gone through difficult seasons and I do not know the answers to why God allows for certain things to happen in our life. But what I do love is the Bible shows us that sometimes what we see in an event is not always what God sees in an event. Sometimes when we can't identify the value of a difficult circumstance doesn't mean that God cannot identify the value in that circumstance. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I love it. I love that we don't always have God's perspective, but what God does ask of us is that we would have faith. One of the greatest tools that someone ever taught me was my father-in-law. Uh, his name is Lonnie Stilwell. He's a businessman, small business owner. And uh, he likes to buy and sell equipment. 
And this is both an amazing thing, but also can be a difficult thing, because when you go on vacations with Lonnie, and he's driving in a car, he's always looking for a deal. He's always looking for a piece of equipment that he can buy and sell later on. And so you love that about him because he has this really entrepreneurial spirit. But what he told me one time when we were driving down this road is he said, Daniel, you wouldn't believe how many times I've taken a wrong turn going someplace. And in that wrong turn, I found a company who was selling a bunch of equipment and I bought it and sold it at an amazing profit. And he said, so now when I make these wrong turns in life, which normally could be a really frustrating situation, especially for a business person who has places to be and things to do, he says, instead of getting frustrated, I said, God, what do you have for me? He said, God, what do you have for me? And I wonder how valuable of a tool that would be if we could apply that to our life circumstances, where sometimes things don't go the way that we plan, things aren't going the way that we intended or that we hoped for, Hope for, and instead of getting frustrated and angry, we just say, God, I don't understand what's happening right now. It doesn't feel good. I can't see the value in it. But God, what do you have for me? Because what I have found is that so often in those moments that go unplanned, that don't go according to the way that we would want them to go, for some reason, God has a plan to use those moments to reveal, to refine, or to restore something in your life. That God wants to reveal something to you. He wants to show something to you about yourself that you didn't know. He wants to refine something in you that maybe is still a rough edge in your life and he wants to just help you to see it. Or he wants to restore something. Restore something that was lost. Number three, God is all we need. Sometimes I think that most of our prayers consist of asking God to protect us from difficulties in life. And I get that, and I pray for that. I pray that God would keep my children healthy. I pray that they would never stray away from his path, that they would stay out of trouble, they would do the right things, they would make good decisions. I pray the same things that you pray. But sometimes God does not always keep our plans. And that can be challenging, that can be difficult, that can be frustrating. But sometimes God doesn't want to protect what we think is valuable in our life. And sometimes he does that because he wants to reveal to us that what we think is valuable is not actually as valuable as we think it is. Sometimes he wants to expose our weakness. Sometimes he wants to expose the lack of strength in our life so that he could show us that we are his real, that he is our, really our only strength in this world. I love what the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. He's reflecting on a statement that God made, that Jesus made. He said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, and in the hardships, and in the persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. We serve a God that doesn't mind bringing us to a point of complete desperation in our life so that we would become confident and that we would know 
that real power in our life comes out of that relationship with him. I feel like I learned this truth when I was a freshman in college. And uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, but I moved to Bakersfield to wrestle in school. And I was there for about six months when after an early morning wrestling practice, I got a phone call from a friend who lived in Sunnyvale, which is where I grew up. And they called me and they said, hey, man, I saw a bunch of ambulances at your house, at your complex. Is everything okay? And I remember thinking that we lived in a complex that had a lot of elderly people. And so it wasn't uncommon for time to time where, you know, someone would pass and the ambulance would come and they would, you know, take care of that sort of thing. And so I assumed that that's probably what it was. And so I remember after getting the call, I thought, well, I'm just going to call my dad to make sure everything's okay. And I remember calling his phone, and he didn't pick up, so I left a message, called again, didn't pick up, left a message. And, uh, and I was starting to get a little bit nervous that maybe something serious had happened, even though nothing like that had ever happened in my life. And so it was not typical for, you know, any past experience that I had gone through. And then I remember my brother randomly called me that morning, and that's when I knew something was wrong. And I can still remember sort of this shadowy, hesitant voice. And he said, Dan, Dad's dead. And I couldn't imagine how this would have impacted my life. And I remember if, if you've ever, like, ridden a bike at a high speed, and then, in, you know, when I was growing up, this is what my, my friends would do. They would throw a stick in your spike. And what happens is that all the speed of the bike that you were going with sort of comes to a sudden stop because the stick sort of breaks the motion. And I felt like, in an emotional sense, those words did that to my life, where it sort of broke the momentum and the forward-moving progress of my life, and it sort of slammed me right in the face. But I remember in that moment, and I know that for a lot of people, these types of events sort of serve as a fork in the road. It either draws you away from God or it draws you to God. And I remember in that moment feeling the presence of God in my life like I had never experienced prior or after. I remember experiencing the grace of God in my heart and in my life in a way that I couldn't explain because there wasn't a moment where I was upset at God. Even though I didn't understand the circumstance, the reality of God's presence was so strong in that moment. And this is what I learned in that moment, that when God is all you have, you realize that God is all you really need. That when God is all you have, you realize that everything that you once thought was valuable no longer has the level of significance that it did when that moment happened. When you can only be sustained by the power of Christ, you realize that that is all you really need in this life. And so this is a challenge this week. It's a really, really simple challenge, but I want for all of us to grab hold of this very basic truth about who we are in our relationship with God. So this is what I want you guys to do, is that at some point throughout the week, I want you to repeat this statement to yourself, that God doesn't exist to serve us, but we exist to serve him. And I wonder how that will shift your perspective as you relate to God and the expectations that you have for him in your life. And it doesn't mean that God is not going to show up in big and miraculous ways in your life, but perhaps it will shift the way that you think about your contribution to the work of God's ministry here on this earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. 
We thank you for the great opportunity that we have to know and to love and to walk with you, to follow you. God, I thank you that there is at least one prayer that you will always be on demand for. There was one prayer, God, that you will always answer every single time. That is when a life calls out to you. No matter how far we are, no matter how distant we are from God as we walked into this space this morning, no matter how long it's been since we've talked to him, no matter what we've said to him, no matter how distant we've been from him, we're only one prayer away from being reunited in fellowship with Jesus. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, I pray that if there's anyone in the room today that has never taken that step of faith, that has never made that decision to receive you into their life, that, God, I pray they would make that bold step today. And it's not complicated. It is simple. It is simply saying, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want to turn from my sin, and I want to embrace the promise that you have for me. I want to trust in you. I want to walk with you. I want to be a part of a community that's doing the same thing. And God, I want to experience the goodness that you offer. God, I pray that that would be a step that someone makes this morning if they've never crossed the line of faith. God, I know that there are many people today that perhaps have grown up with a faith story, but for whatever reason have been distant from you. God, I pray that today would be the day, the moment where they re-engage that relationship with you, that they go back to their first love. And whatever's happened in their past, Lord, that we would allow for that to be the past and that we can embrace the truth and the future that you have for us now. God, I thank you for this community. I thank you for what you're doing here. And we pray, God, that you would continue to work in the lives of our people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.